Thanks for joining us today on Kingdom Roots. Our podcast is made possible by Northern Seminary. I want to let you know about an opportunity with Northern that I hope you'll join me. Growing in my understanding of the New Testament in its context is what I have spent my life pursuing. I believe it's crucial to the kingdom's mission today. That's why I always get excited when I get to teach my class on the New Testament and its world and all the various courses connected to it. On Tuesday, September 13th, from 10 a.m. to noon, the admissions team at Northern is hosting a Taste of Northern. It's an opportunity to get a taste of what it's like to be in a seminary class, and I hope you'll join me. So I'm going to ask you to think about joining us. September 13th, 10 a.m. to noon, you can partake in our class. We know it can feel intimidating to think about pursuing an education in a seminary, and that's why we want to make it as easy as possible for you to get a taste of what this kind of experience is like. So sign up today at seminary.edu backslash taste. Again, that's seminary.edu backslash taste. I hope we get to see you in class. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, Scott and I are continuing our conversation about signs of possible toxicity in your church. Scott, in our last episode, we talked about secrecy. We've talked about power. Those are the past two episodes that we've done. And as we continue to try to help people identify toxicity in their own church culture, Today, we want to talk specifically about signs of unhealthy church culture. Well, this will also give us a chance to tell you about an upcoming guest we're having on our podcast, Caitlin Beatty, who will talk with us about the problem of celebrity in the church. Yes, I'm so excited to host Caitlin Beatty. Yes. And a few weeks ago on her Facebook page, she posted a series of red flags that signal that your church has an unhealthy culture. And then she also gave some signs of a healthy culture as well. And we wanted to talk through that list a bit on this episode of our show. So Caitlin mentions churches that center growth strategies and emphasize their own unique way of doing things, churches that have a sense of being special or unique. They don't work well with other churches in their community because they tend to see them as competition. So why are these things red flags? And where have you seen, you know, in your experience, this in action in churches? What does it look like? What are the implications? You know, I think this observation by Caitlin, And I'm really looking forward to talking to her next week. I think this observation is very insightful. And it comes from her years of journalism, in a sense. And also, you know, journalists see the underbelly of churches. Mm. Things start to stand out for them. Uh, I remember one time talking to Sky Jathani, and Sky said that modern churches, modern pastors today, no longer are connected so much to denominations but they're in tribes and they identify with some major 
mega church pastor with a huge platform, podcasts, whatever, mm. everything. You know, they've yeah. got every they provide everything. It's almost like they become focused on one person. Well, I've noticed this with Caitlin, but I don't think I've ever put it into terms. So when she says it, I think, yeah, that's I've seen that and I haven't thought about it, but she's right. I've noticed this in churches I've spoken at. Hmm. I've noticed this in books, in products, in church advertising. There is a branding. And that branding, Laura, becomes a language. And then all of a sudden, this church is using this language. Now, I also know some of these people have told me, yeah, and our language changes every six months, and our pastor has a new vision and everything. And that, yeah. that's also a part of this issue. But to me, this, this idea of branding and a sense that, let's say, we are X, and this is our language, X. I remember that Bill Hybels at Willow. Now, this is the, he was a master of branding and a master yeah. of making people think that their church was special. And those right. people did think their church was special. And in some ways, of course, it was. But they came up with the language of Christ followers. It was a very interesting, I mean, you think that people use that today. Well, no one was using that at that time. And it yeah. became their kind of distinguishing mark. Hmm. And that's what they called Christians. They didn't want to use the word Christian. They didn't want to use the word believers. Hmm. Uh, you know, that's typical language that evangelicals have used. So they came up with that kind of language. And I do think that the one thing that she's getting at is growth. This comes out of the church growth movement and then the megachurch movement where hmm. success, let's just face it, was measured, and I think it was Steve Carter who said this, and maybe I've added one, is it was about butts in the seat, bills in the plate, baptisms mm -hmm. in water, and then uh -huh. I think I added buildings on the campus. Yeah. The four Bs of success. Now, that second one, bills, there is a sense in which I know that some of these larger churches and some of these smaller church pastors think when attendance is going down, we're not going to be able to meet the budget. That's the other B, right. I guess. That's right. Yeah. Bills that yep. will meet the budget and exceed it. And uh, this became a craze in the 70s with a Jerry Falwell. You're too young yeah. for this. You know, <laughs> Jerry when he was at Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia, and he uh -huh. had Robbie Heiner singing on his platform every week. You began to measure yourself over against Jerry Falwell, and he created mm. a Rolodex. This was before computers, you know, and they just sent out these mailers to churches, and it built a platform. And mm. success was measured by numbers. We were always hearing about numbers. Now, And now I'm not talking just about Thomas Road. That's, I don't even know what that church is like today. But I think Caitlin is right, is that this, this branding, your unique way, your unique language, your unique programs, and she makes the observation that you read, is that they don't work with other churches very well. And that right. is absolutely the truth, because they have built a system. They don't mind uh, uh, growing in the sense of 
having other campuses and let's say colonizing other churches that are struggling and they bring them in. Right. But they develop a language and they talk about their way of doing things. You've got something to say here. Well, I'm just thinking about that because you see there's this antagonism. I don't know if that's the right word I'm looking for, but this fear almost of cooperation with other churches. There's more of a sense of competition as opposed to churches in a you know specific geographical location banding together and saying, how can we serve our community? Like we're all different branches off the same tree. We're all related. We're all serving Christ. What are some ways we can do that together and support one another as opposed to, I'm thinking about like protecting, well, we're going to do this program. We hope this other church down the road doesn't find out about it because we want to get it out there first so that, you know, we can show that we're innovative and we're doing new things or that we've got the biggest, you know, small group ministry or women's ministry out of all the other churches in our community. it has a sense of competition and not a sense of collegiality, which I yeah. just think is really sad. Okay. Yeah. I was, I'll tell you about my community. I won't mention the name, but the local mainline pastors get together, I think every other week, or maybe it's once a month. And they are all good friends. And I've yeah. noticed that if the Episcopal Church has something going on, that the Presbyterian pastor and the Methodist pastor show up. If the Methodist Church has something going on, the you know the others show up, but the Evangelical Church pastors don't show up. Right. And I've even talked to a couple of them and asked them questions about this, and I'm thinking, no, why not? I mean, you know. They're not unbelievers. They may be progressive uh, politically, and they may be liberal on theology. But come on, there's ways to cooperate. And I was talking to a pastor recently who had told someone else, uh, uh, a pastor had told the pastor I was talking to, that he was thrilled that a local church was going to probably close because it would make his church the only church in town or the oh, only that's church really is. sad it was like really this is yeah. what and you hit the nail on the head here Lori, when you talked about competition rather than cooperation and collegiality that that sort of branding i think is exactly what caitlin Beatty is getting at is right. that that sort of we're special if we begin to cooperate we'll lose our specialness if we say good things about the other church some people might go there. Oh my, that's they're in church. I mean, what more? Right. What? How right. Can that hurt? Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's it's a little bit. It's based in fear, and it's it's about separation, which is just unfortunate. Yeah. Well, another point that she talks about is that former members and staff are written off and shunned without attempts at repair and repentance. So this is a sign of an unhealthy church culture when former people who were involved now, you know, we're shunning them or we're writing them off or we're saying negative things about them or maybe even just insinuating negative things about them. And I guess I'm wondering, are pastors and other leaders who are speaking dismissively of former staff and church members, are they trying to hide something? And again, I think this gets back at this idea of our brand over all others. 
So if, you know, a former staff member leaves to go to another church, or if a former church member leaves to go to another church, why can't we bless them in their departure? Why, you know, why are we saying negative things? And if there are reasons why they're leaving, why aren't there attempts at repair and repentance? Because this to me seems like the way of Christ is that if we've hurt someone, even if they decide to leave, that at some point we circle back and say, I, I feel like you were hurt and I want to examine that and to see if there's something that I can learn from that and apologize for. Yeah. Laura, this is really a profound thing that she's talking about. And it's difficult to get concrete evidence. And here's what I see going on is a pastor has a platform. And on that platform, the pastor, now I don't mean just on Sunday morning, but the platform that a pastor has the capacity, and as you start your church, don't ever forget this, to tell, to shape, form a narrative yeah. that can have an impact on people in your circle, in your church, because they trust you. Yeah. And this is the abuse of pastoral trust and the pastoral integrity. Okay, this happens, I think, in, let's say, three ways. Okay, this is how it works. All right. One way is almost total silence. Yeah. You know, you don't, someone just disappears. I saw this on Twitter today. They said, beware of institutions where board members or leaders just suddenly disappear and no explanation is given. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That uh, makes people fill in the blanks, but right. it's a way, it's a passive aggressive act of annihilation of a person to, and to erase that person from the church's narrative. Okay. That's one yeah. thing. Now. A second way is to lie. And I find this, uh, to create a false nerve, I find this to be the most common. And that is to yeah. say, the Lord has called so-and-so onto another position. Whether What happened is they got fired. Right. Or, you know, and fired may be a very generous word because it could just be a power play. But this is one of the narratives that pastors have the capacity to create from that platform or from their platform in the church where people trust them. Mm. Now, the third one is what uh, Caitlin is talking about. And I, I think they all have to come together because in a sense, they all work together. And that is to use degrading language about someone in order to create a narrative about someone that mm -hmm. the pastor wants to denigrate and to get people to disregard and to not like and so in other words you say this person is threatening me so i'm gonna start telling stories about them well that right there is abusive that is spiritual abuse right is to use your platform to de denigrate another person intentionally in order to destroy their reputation all right and that will cause them to lose their, let's say, their respect in, yeah. in that community. And vicious, diabolical, this is the very language concern, the topic of concern in the book of James. 
-hmm. is that the person who can bless someone for being made in the image of God can use that same tongue as a poison. And then, you know, James just kind of let go and he starts using, he starts mixing more metaphors than anyone should. (laughs) You know, it's a poison that sets things afire. You know, poisons don't set things afire. But, and it can burn a whole forest down. And that's, Mm. this is something we need to be really careful of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And it's not that truth can't be told in the right way, in a pastoral way, in the right setting. Right. You might say to your staff that this person was caught stealing money. You might say in your staff, this person um, has challenges in their marriage and and there are admissions of infidelity. You don't have to just start getting into all the graphic details and that's all you need for a staff because then, you know, we got social media influence and stuff like that. But I think Caitlin has a really good observation that this is a sign of character that when a pastor is speaking dismissively of former uh, staff, then you have a signal of a toxic church culture. And here's why. That pastor was involved in hiring that person. Where was their judgment then? Right. Did you make a mistake? Well, then own it, you know, and I've seen some pastors do this is that we some situations where we hired someone and I realized later that's not what we thought we needed that, but we didn't. Now that that right there is a mistake right? uh, because you've put a person's life through hell to hire them and then get rid of them. But I do. I really do think that speaking dismissively of people and especially if you don't tell that person that and they find out later that you were talking about me this way. Why didn't you tell me? You know, that right. that's the kind of thing that that is a revelation of a person's character or lack thereof. Yeah. It's clearly a sign of toxic culture. Yeah. And well, some sometimes you'll have a mixture of responses, the three that you mentioned, probably based on the forum that they're in. So silence in some place, maybe the gloss in other places. Oh, they're moving on to better things. We're so excited. And then privately, perhaps the dismissive yeah. comments. I was thinking about this because I've seen this played out and I thought, gosh, if the truth was they've moved on to bigger and better things. Why weren't they invited back to the retirement party of a colleague, <laughs> right? Why weren't they invited yeah. to a baby shower yeah. of a coworker at some yeah. point? If that were true, they wouldn't be erased from our lives. Yeah. Um, and so just Very- a little reflection on that is worth the time. Very good. Very good. <laughs> So another thing that Caitlin talks about Very good is, about very bad. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Caitlin wonders about pastors that are thrown into leadership at too young of an age, largely based on their charisma, their preaching skills, when they haven't yet had the chance to demonstrate maturity and wisdom. And I think sometimes I've known young pastors who have a great deal of spiritual maturity and wisdom. So it's not always the age, but we have seen a lot of examples of pastors being put into positions well above their preparation or readiness. So I guess, you know, thinking about churches that are having search committees, what sort of qualities should they be looking for in a new pastor? So in other words, during the hiring process, is there a way to identify 
will this person be a healthy leader? You know, are they being advanced beyond their maturity? You know, we want someone who has great preaching skills, but at what cost if their management is faulty and if their leadership is suspect? But how in the world would we know these things during a hiring process? Oh, this is a big one. This is really a big one. And I don't think there's any absolute answers, but I do think there are clearly some important, wise policies or protocols or strategies or pathways that we should be taking. All right. In a former day, virtually every person who became a senior pastor began by being a youth pastor. Mm-hmm. And they had to serve in the church for, you know, a lot of them, five to 10 years as a youth pastor to prove that they had some of these skills. They didn't just right. start out as senior pastors. Okay, so I think we need to have a little bit more sophisticated on ramp strategies. Okay, that's one thing. The second thing is, I think we need more pastors who consider themselves mentors Hmm. for other pastors. Now, I don't mean traveling around and speaking at conferences (laughs) and sharing their brilliance. I mean, actually, in the day-to-day ministry of investing in helping them and discern with them. Now, I don't know how it works out in daily, but I know Tim Keller cares about this. I don't know how he does it. And he might be the world's best and he might not be very good at all. But I doubt very much that he's that I doubt very much that he's not good. I doubt I, I suspect he's pretty good at this. And I think that we need more mentors and more, uh, let's say, young pastors who know to whom they can go for wisdom. John Ortberg used to say when he was at Willow Creek that every one on their staff needed to be in contact with a seminary professor and an older pastor. So find some gray hairs and let them speak into your life. Share with them what you're going through and see if you can learn from them. So I think that role of a mentor. On search committees, we need more psychologists and fewer lawyers on (laughs) search committees who And it's not that I have anything against lawyers. It's that there's been too many of these big churches, failing churches. They have boards seemingly of lawyers. Psychologists can disrupt a room yeah, because they perceive people. All right, Laura, here's a fact. A narcissist is not only lacks self-awareness and insight into their own personality, they don't perceive personality and character in other people. So if you have a room full of hot-headed narcissists, you're going to get one just like them. (laughs) You're not going to get someone who is perceptive of people. Hmm. So I've often said for every lawyer, you need two psychologists. (laughs) Just to to balance it out. (laughs) To counter their power and persuasion. Now, Look, I, you know, you know, Kelly Fabian, Kelly Fabian's story. She's a lawyer and she's also a person of high character. And she talks like a psychologist. You know, she listens to people really well and thoroughly. Mm. 
people like that. We need more people like that on a search committee. And I think the old line, it's from, I think it's from the business world. The best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. If that's the case, I think it is, then when you hire someone, you need to have a solid track record of how they have performed in the same kind of ministry you're calling yeah. them into. Yeah. And if they have no track record there, you're spitting into the wind, to use my dad's expression. It's you're just going to you don't you're guessing, hoping. And that's not that's not wise. So yeah. bring them on. Let them work around. You know, I've seen this happen with churches. They bring someone in and they want to see how they operate, see if they fit into the culture of that church, if they have the gifts that they need. And if they don't, you know, you just say this is not going to work out in this position, but this is one we have for you. I don't think they ought to just get rid of them. They've, they've disrupted a family. Well, that's my best attempt at that. Yeah, that's good. So I'm hearing you say search committees should be asking candidates about who they look to for mentorship and then interview those mentors. Like what have you, what qualities have you seen? Where are their shortcomings? Are those things that, you know, they can grow in? Do you see signs of growth or are these going to be perennial problems? Those are great questions. You know, you can't, yeah. if you ask a mentor, all right, let's just say someone right now calls me and says, what's Laura Terrell like? They should say to me, what are two things you think she's weak at? Yeah. If I say there are none, I think <laughs> they should say, well, that, you're not very perceptive, are you? Because no yeah. one's perfect. Okay. Yeah. So I think you're right. Interview their mentors mm. and demand that their mentors say negative things. Yeah. Not, not in critical, real, you know, like, get rid of them. Tell me some things that you know this person needs to work on. I've done this. I've filled out a lot of recommendation forms over the year. And some yeah. of those recommendation forms don't say simply, do you have anything else to say? And they don't simply say, do you have any concerns? They'll say something like this, name one or two concerns you've noticed. I've expressed that. I've said things like, yeah. he's only 30 years old. Yeah. He has two small babies. They don't have a lot of money. They've stressed over a lot. It's it, They're going to be under a lot of stress. Are you willing to bring a person in who's young, who doesn't have much money, who is going to have demands at home as well? I mean, this yeah. got to be honest. Yeah. yeah. And I'm so tired of these. It is really a sad story that a lot of these pastors who are failing today were superstars before they became mature. Right. And it probably didn't take long for some people in the inner circle to see that they weren't mature, but it, in, in many of these cases, nothing happened for too long. Right. I think the other thing I think about with some of those folks is when they would brag about their lack of preparation or they would brag about their lack of education or their lack of mentorship because who could mentor them? Yeah. I think Mark Driscoll said something to that effect. Like who would he even listen to? Like yeah. none of those people had churches as big as his, you yeah. know? Oh, I've heard him say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those kinds of, gosh, sometimes when people just say it, like that's worth listening to and wondering, you know, yeah. why is that a point of pride? Um, yeah. You know, yeah. and it's sad. 
because Mark was close to a, a profoundly wise man in Portland in the Northwest named Jerry Bush. And Jerry is the very opposite. He's humble. He's thoughtful. Hmm. He's theologically educated. And it didn't rub off. It didn't rub hmm. off enough. And it, Mark Driscoll is just a story into himself. And you know, I heard Bill Hybels make fun of seminary many times. And I would say at the time, I thought, well, you are doing pretty well. I got to admit that. And I had a friend that I played basketball with in college who became a pastor. And he had such good personal leadership skills hmm. that he didn't have time for seminary. He did a degree in education and he was a good pastor. It can happen without that. But it's the people who brag about it and say, no, I'm not going to seminary. And just sort of appeal to the lack of education. That's dangerous. Mm. Yeah. Well, then Caitlin also mentions in her list of an unhealthy church culture, signs of unhealthy church culture, the blurring of personal and professional boundaries for ministry staff and sort of the unspoken expectation that staff will go above and beyond to support the church or the lead pastor's vision. Um, and this can have impact on how staff are paid and what benefits they receive and how their time is treated. If they are just expected to drop everything, you know, to get a project done, how can this be problematic? What are some signs of it? You know, the blurring, I've heard this recently, the blurring of the personal and the professional is an interesting situation in two ways. With social media, with email, with text messages, I think we're most of us are living a blurred existence. I communicate with my colleagues and administrators at the weirdest of times, and they communicate with me at the weirdest of times. You know, I've texted Bill Scheel, our president, at 6 a.m., <laughs> you know, because it'll sit there in his box and he'll respond. You know, so we kind of have this blurring. I think that's one of the issues is that we have, we are living in a blurred existence. The second thing is we have such a blurred existence that many of us, well, I'll put it this way, before I get to the to that, is there is something that our professional life should be personal and our personal should be professional. I mean, you're a pastor and you are a pastor 24-7, not just when you're at the office. Right. Okay. And I don't mean by that, that you're functioning as a pastor, but that you should be pastoral. That's your it's gift, identity. Right? Yeah, yeah. That's who yeah. you are. All right. So I think that there, there is going to be some of that. So some of this, I don't know how to separate that, but I do think this, I do think that even the, I, I read a whole book on this and I, it's one of these guys who writes about the business world. My son told me, I need to read this book. He said, it's really, everybody's talking about it. A, a guy named Grant, his last name was Grant. And I started reading a little bit about this. And, and that is that some businesses have realized that people do far better for the business if they restrict their time where they can be working than mm -hmm. if they, it can just blur. You know, yeah. Some of these people from 7 a.m. when they wake up, if they wake up that late, you know, in my world, they start communicating with one another and they do that till they go to bed. And they learned, I think his name, I don't know, his last name, first name, learned that if people will shut things down at, say, six o'clock, 
no yeah. more business stuff and just make it a culture at your work that you're home. Right. Now, I once heard a pretty famous pastor say, he tells the people in his church, when you go home, you're done for the day. I don't want you working on stuff with the church. Yeah. And that's really healthy. We'll call it the Sabbath principle, that the Sabbath principle is a whole day off. Well, most of us don't take a whole day off on Sunday, but let's just call the Sabbath principle is that we need rest from our work. And in that world of the Sabbath principle, those people rested in the evening when they could no longer work until the next day when they could work. Right. We don't have that anymore because we have electric lights and social media and digital communication. So when we get home and it starts getting dark, we can still be working. Right. And so I think Caitlin has a really good point here. You know, she has, I think, I thought these were really good. They um, are good. We need, I think we need to develop strong boundaries between our work life and our, let's say, our family life, our home life. And there are times when you are going to find out that someone just died. Well, you're going to have to do something about that. All right. right. But someone not being able to find the hymn book, <laughs> that's for tomorrow. Right. So we need to develop really solid self-perceptions of what's important and what's not. And I think a lot of pastors struggle with this and have learned the proper balance. Yeah. Uh, I suppose AD people, HD type people, love all the chaos. So that's <laughs> sort of what gets their brain going. Um, yeah. and, and they can really be very productive uh, because yeah. they like all the spontaneity. But I'm right. not sure that's the healthy core the formation right. of a church culture. And I think it can become dangerous when that becomes the expectation. I think pastors are always in danger of over-identifying with their role and expecting everyone else to feed it. So mm -hmm. I think pastors can be in danger of identifying their self-worth with their performance as a pastor. Mm -hmm. And there can be a temptation to use your support staff to make you look better. And sometimes that can mean assigning them huge tasks um, and not having a lot of grace about the timing mm -hmm. of those things. Because if it doesn't look great, if it doesn't get out on time, then that reflects on the pastor. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be a real dangerous place to be in. And this can play out in, in, in how support staff are treated, how they're paid, their time off, their health insurance, like when they become treated like a means to an end and the end is the pastor's position. Yeah. That can and, be super dangerous. And performance on Sunday. You know, you bring this up. I had recently someone tell me, that more than once that she had been up to 2 or 3 a.m. on a Saturday night because the pastor had made some foolish and reckless last-minute decision that completely reshaped everything that was yes. going to happen and all kinds of things had to happen and she was up or he was up. I can't, I've heard this from several people. Yeah. To 2 or 3 a.m. And 
that can only be stopped by someone saying, no, I won't do that. Now they may lose right. their job, but that was a healthy boundary. Right. And someone needs to know that kind of expectation and request is unreasonable, it's unprofessional, and it is especially unchristian. And I think it's that approach of seeing our church's support staff. They are professionals. And they do great work. Like I've worked now for three different churches, and I would say in every instance, the support staff deeply loves the church and deeply wants to see ministry done well. Like yeah. these are not slackers. These are yeah. not people who are, you know, wasting time. They're working hard, but there there can be a tipping point where they are treated like means to an end that can become very dangerous as opposed to healthy people who desire good things for their church. That can be taken advantage of as sort of a, this is your ministry. This is, you know, yeah. we could spiritualize it in dangerous ways. Yeah, and that's right. That's abusive almost, spiritual abuse almost. It's weaponizing spirituality. A narcissistic leader sees everybody who works for him as an instrument for his or her own glory. Right. And so you're right. This is yeah. going to be a characteristic of a toxic, narcissistic leader who will create around him people who will do his bidding, no matter the cost to their own life. Right. Right. Well, I think so Caitlin, Caitlin has some good she, ideas here, Donnie. She really does. And thinking through the antidotes to these things that, you know, that leaders are healthy and mature. They have boundaries. They have people around them that are speaking into their lives and holding them accountable. And I think she does a great job of kind of laying out both a list of unhealthy culture and then what would be the opposite or signs of healthy culture. So if you look back on Facebook, you won't hear this um, for a bit, but look on Facebook under Caitlin Beatty or on Instagram. She has this too. Unhealthy church cultures and healthy church cultures. She gives a great list of red flags for each of those categories. And then spend some time reflecting on your own church culture or your own Christian organization and think through, how are we doing? How are we doing in these areas? What could we be doing better? Are there some things that need to be open to change? And who would be the one to steer that change in a more healthy direction. So I just encourage you all to think through those things and what we want ultimately are healthy church cultures that display the goodness and character of God, because yeah. that's why we're doing this is yeah. to be witnesses and ambassadors for Christ. So we want to have healthy church cultures. Anything else you would say about no, that before that's good. we wrap I, up? Yeah, no, we've <laughs> asked people to listen a long time today. It's, yes. uh, it's, these are, I think Caitlin has some great stuff here. Yeah. I started I'm looking forward. I think Chris pointed me to him. I said, oh, wow, these are really good. You brought yeah. it up with me. So, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to her soon. And yes. yeah, so in our next episode, we'll have a chance to interview her about her new book. So stay tuned for that. And we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Mm -hmm.